Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Earlier this week, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems invited us to visit their Desert Horizon Flight Development and Test Center in El Mirage in the high desert of California, where we saw the company's new Mojave unmanned aircraft, a short takeoff and landing variant of the Gray Eagle made by the company and now in service with the United States Army. It first flew over the summer and has been undergoing flight testing ever since. Able to take off and land in about 500 feet from unprepared surfaces, the aircraft can carry a full surveillance package and up to 16 Hellfire missiles, a minigun, and other munitions for missions of more than 25 hours. The Gray Eagle and Mojave are common except for a new engine that produces 30% more horsepower, a new thicker wing with large leading and trailing edge flaps, allowing for short takeoffs and landings, and beefier landing gear and tires to allow it to operate from austere locations. The company invested to develop the new aircraft to address what it sees as a future worldwide market for surveillance and strike capabilities that can operate with agility in rugged conditions and will appeal particularly to U.S. Special Forces as well as Army and Marine Forces that will operate from island bases in the Indo-Pacific. Once back at the company's headquarters in San Diego, we met with Dave Alexander, the president of General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. The company unveiled the new plane this morning, and you can find images and video of it on the General Atomics Aeronautical Systems website at ga-asi.com. And as many of you know, the company sponsors our coverage of strategy as well as our Andy Marshall series of conversations with leading national security thinkers. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. Here's our conversation with Dave Alexander. Dave, uh, thanks so very much uh, for taking some time with us at the end of what was a very busy day. And congratulations on the new Mojave uh, aircraft. We had the honor of going out to uh, Desert Horizon uh, out in uh, El Mirage and and seeing the airplane in the front of flesh. And I have to say, it it's really uh, looks like, a, like an extraordinary aircraft. Well, thanks, Bago. It's really nice to see you again. And and I uh, really appreciate uh, you spending time with us, and thank you for your compliment on that beautiful aircraft. Uh, it, it, is, it is very neat. Um, and I know that you know, you've always told me that you're always working on, on stuff, uh, and then we have a tendency of seeing that stuff later. Uh, so it was no surprise that you guys are working not just on this aircraft, but a number of other aircraft uh, as you look beyond the Predator line and, and behind, uh, Sky, beyond Sky Guardian. Uh, as well as a whole bunch of Skyborg-type aircraft and, and the like. I know uh, Avenger is, is playing that role, and I have a question about that in a little bit. Talk to us about Mojave, and what's the requirement that you're shooting for, because there is no requirement, and you guys have a tendency of making investments in what you think will be future markets. Talk to us about what Mojave is uh, and what it's bringing to the market that now doesn't exist. Well, we saw a gap, you know, with the group three UAVs um, and being runway independent, but they've got no useful load. They're too small. So we were looking at a ways to get away from VTOL and uh, get away from those inefficiencies, but be able to carry a large useful load uh, for an armed overwatch mission, as well as, um, I would say, 
um, if you don't need all that payload on there for very long endurance mission as well and make it expeditionary and make it unimproved runway at the same time. And, and talk to us a little bit about the performance characteristics, right? I mean, effectively, it's a Gray Eagle that can fly as slow as 35 knots, which is pretty amazing depending on load and, that, and, and wind conditions. Talk to us a little bit about takeoff landing distance and payload and mission endurance, uh, ultimately, that you're trying to deliver. So the idea was um, to springboard off of Gray Eagle, and that's about where it ended. You know, we took the Gray Eagle fuselage, we adapted it with a very large flotation tire landing gear, and then on the back of it, we put a turboprop uh, Allison 250 engine on it. And that gave us around a horsepower and uh, flotation to get us on unimproved runways. And then the main thing on this is the stall capability. So leading edge slats, double slotted flaps, you can uh, you know, configure the wing to fly really, really slow and essentially get the short takeoff and landing capability that's so important. That combined with expeditionary uh, takeoff and landing, so it's all automated. I don't need a pilot to do this. I pick a spot and the airplane lands itself. And so that's the whole concept. Big useful load. It could be a load out of 16 Hellfires. It could be um, a clean wing and just ISR with super long endurance as well. So that's, that's the concept behind it. And, and you guys are talking about takeoff in about 400 feet and about landing in about four or 500 feet as well. Yeah, correct. So, um, you know, the beauty of having this uh, high lift wing is that you can do these short takeoff and landings. And then once you get airborne, get the landing gear retracted, then you can retract all the high lift devices. And actually airplanes are very efficient once you're in that flight mode. And you guys are about 25 hours of endurance, there, thereabouts giving pay, given payload? Yeah, given payload up to closer to 30 hours and then uh, as you load it up and make it more of a you know a high combat you know close air support with a lot of weapons on it um, you know it'd be down in the in lower numbers you know more of a eight to ten hour mission at that time how long did it take you to develop this aircraft and about how much money did it cost because you guys have a tendency of developing everything out of your own uh, pocket yeah, well, we had a couple starts and stops but i'd say if you added the time up total it was about two years the first flight and so right now we're flying and we're fine-tuning uh, you know the the uh, takeoff and landing um, autopilot and um, so you know but two first flight you know about two years and that you know that took advantage of what we typically do for our new platforms is take the systems out of very proven platform like Gray Eagle or MQ-9 pick those systems up that just work and got millions of flight hours behind them and put them in a new airframe, new propulsion, and that's how we can expand new capability rapidly. And about how much money did it cost to develop? Uh, if you can tell me, if you want to use a bigger than bread box term. Well, it's it, let's say it's more than ten million and and less than thirty. Okay, <laughs> I'll let the audience use their imagination on what what that could be. Um, well, what it depends on how where you take it and you know how far you want to go with the number. We're not we're not done yet. Um, and um, probably to date we're maybe 20-25 million into the project, but there's still a little more to do. 
Um, one of the advantages of doing this, as you've told me in the past, is you learn a whole bunch of things as, as you do this. And you've been trying to align the organization for speed, and I want to try to get to that in a minute. Because once you have a, 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 you know, once you tour all of your facilities here, you realize exactly how much of it is vertically integrated, how much of the work you guys do in-house that you can control, and then the pods and all the other work that you guys do in terms of the entire ecosystem. But what I want to ask you is, what requirement have you built this to, right? Because the, you can survive or die on this beach. Um, the armed overwatch requirement there, uh, for the U.S. Special Operations Command, uh, there was a sense that there would be an unmanned component to this. None of the winners are um, uh, unmanned. It was all manned uh, platforms. Uh, there are those even in the community who, who question whether or not that was a good decision or, or not. Uh, indeed, there are some people who think uh, that the Army uh, attack helicopter mission, for example, or a reconnaissance mission could also be done uh, by, by unmanned uh, platforms. What's the requirement and what sense do you have that this is actually going to be something that uh, not just a special operations customer, but certainly the United States Army or Marine Corps will buy uh, ultimately, or whether or not they go, Dave, that's a brilliant idea. Let's start a 10-year competition that you end up losing. Well, I mean, there's always that risk, um, but, you know, we really thought that, um, you know, building this aircraft just so they could see what kind of capability, because a lot of times if you just present slides, everybody says, yeah, you know, that looks really good, but until you actually do it, does the, does the idea really sink in? So really think doing the demonstration is a big, big part of, of uh, believing, you know, the concept. And, you know, um, special ops, we really think this is a perfect airplane for that. I think it's a perfect airplane for armed overwatch. You know, obviously it doesn't have a pilot in the cockpit because there isn't one in the airplane. But one could argue, why would you do that um, when you could make it unmanned? Uh, and, you know, if it doesn't, if that airplane doesn't come home, it's not a sad story. You know, it's, it's uh, just replace it with another one. One of the briefings that we got here, and obviously uh, you've got a terrific uh, marketing and strategic comms team uh, that has an ability to do, shout out to you, Mark, uh, that has an ability of, of doing good messaging. But there is still a perception. It was one of the best briefs to sort of see how this existing force of Predator and other aircraft could contribute to creating that JADC2 grid, that mesh uh, that would command uh, and control a future battle force and actually be able to extend force remarkably uh, far out in the Pacific, which is the to the persistence part of the argument. And wherever you go, you're creating network. Are, are you changing people's minds? Because there is a tendency of thinking of the Predator as the last wars platform without a role in whatever challenges we're facing until you go back and you look at it and you say, wow, we have 500 about of these aircraft that could actually do a whole bunch of other missions indeed by changing the payloads. It's not about the airplane, but the capability you're de delivering. Where are you on getting people to change how they think about the platform itself? Well, you know, we started with multi-domain operations with the Army and pushed that really hard, and I think that's played well. I think it's um, fit within the Army's Futures Command, and uh, I think we've shown that, you know, the Gray Eagle on a standoff mission with, um, air-launched effects, small UASs that can reach in um, and uh, ID targets from sensors that are on the aircraft with very long range. So the idea is standoff, sensors that reach in far. If you want to combat ID it, run a small in there, combat ID it, and you can get Cat-1 coordinates, you know, to send back to precision fires or, you know, 
uh, even those small UASs could take out the target themselves. So I, you know, I think we've made headway with the Army in, think, in that thinking. Um, the next is, you know, the Air Force has actually adapted what we'd call uh, multi-domain operations uh, they, for MQ-9, and uh, they have a different name for it. Um, but they've got new missions now that are doing the same. And the key to it all really is affordable persistence. Now, granted, we've had, we're a victim of our own success from the war on terror, but it's just put different payloads on it, you know, and the big part of what's going forward for us, and we're part of the Skyboard, you know, um, uh, program that's going on right now is autonomy. So get the autonomy in there and, and um, get these airplanes meshed together, and now you can start doing what you originally wanted to do on advanced battle management system, which is having meshed aircraft, doing autonomy work, um, and uh, you're, you're commanding the mesh, you're not commanding the aircraft. And once you have that, then you can start thinking about taking those meshed airplanes and, and replacing things like AWACS, you know, uh, J-STARS, um, what else? Um, rivet joint. With disaggregated aircraft, with, with that is shrunk down with the, with the sensors put into pods that are modular wing. Because these, I'm telling you, these monolithic, um, you know, high-value airborne assets are a thing of the past when you think about it. They were developed in the 50s before you even had GPS, right, before you had SATCOM. And so there is ways around this now. You don't need to put 15 people in the air in a big aircraft and put them into danger. So I really think the future is persistent, disaggregated, unmanned aircraft. Uh, let me um, ask you about that. And by the way, navigators are people too, right? I mean, you were talking about yeah. jobs that have gone away. You know, GPS yeah. got rid of navigators except in the special operations mission. But um, seeing some of your presentations going from the low attributable all the way up to, you know, MQ Next, uh, your MQ Next program, the Avengers are the ones that are actually proving uh, to be that Skyborg, right? You guys have two Avengers that are flying, two slightly different model uh, aircraft. One's got a lovely uh, new wing on it that gives it uh, greater performance, up to 400 knots. Um, talk to us a little bit about because you guys are actually envisioning this and playing with it within your boundaries, then bringing the customer in, they see it and they go, hey, wait a minute, walk us through this. Walk us through the vision and the different elements of this, the Sparrowhawk system, uh, which is you know, a, a fascinating capability uh, of, a, of a long range unmanned aircraft that can get launched from an existing Predator aircraft. Walk us through the vision as you see it, because you guys are investing in each discrete part of this in order to demonstrate what the art of the future possible is. So we've been working hard on a mission we call Defender, okay? And this is a disaggregated set of um, unmanned aircraft that have special uh, apertures on them that um, are of a, um, a sense that be with six, say six aircraft linked together with these special sensors on them can cover very wide areas of for airborne early warning. So airborne early warning, air moving target indicator. So this platform can, can do that. Now, where can you do it? You can take this, this multifunction aperture sensor and if you wanna keep it over land, you probably could just do that with MQ-9. If you're trying to take it all away from Guam into the South China Seas, then you probably need to tank that mission 
because if you want to stay on and persist, so there are two different airplanes, two different platforms to do the same mission. Uh, but one's got long legs, probably needs to be air to air refueled. And the other one is, um, you know, overland, could be in the North Warning System, it could be in Eastern Europe and provide the same function. And again, these are airplanes that exist. You don't need to start over again. Talk to us about sort of the, the, the breadth of this, right? Because you're imagining each slice of this yeah, so and investing in capability so across the piece. So what I just explained was what we would call the kind of the outside layer. You know, these airplanes that aren't built to be survivable, they're built to stand off and have very long uh, range sensors, okay? Then, the, then there's the next gen that, that we're looking at. Now these, are, these have lowered you know, radar cross-section so they can get closer to the threat. But they're not um, so exquisite that you would, they would fly directly into, you know, 100% uh, IATs. So the, so the idea there is if you do want to penetrate in, uh, you do want to ID something that you're sensing with your passive sensors, then you would launch one of these smalls that we, we talked about. And that could be a small that's, um, you know, very stealthy and could go in and do all kinds of things that, you know, we can't talk about here. But... So that's the idea, kind of a nested approach um, with our next gen. Get you close enough, and now you just, instead of spending all this money uh, penetrating that, because those penetrators are out there, and they, they're needed. I'm not saying they're not needed, but what is needed is persistence, and you're not going to get that with, you know, with these um, uh, silver bullet airplanes, nor would you want to fly them that much. So the idea here is next gen, it's a you know, very, very long endurance, can get close to the threat and launch, launch the smalls in and uh, do the same job for you know, RISR, armed, uh, armed ISR, cyber, you name it. And, uh, and jamming, you know, those kind of things. Uh, exactly, and uh, I would point out that uh, former Defense Secretary Bob Work would talk about um, you know, deterrence by persistence and by overwatch and by uh, detection uh, effectively and to be able to push that picture uh, of the adversary so that they can't do anything without you recognizing what it is and to be able to collect sort of persistent intelligence. You know, as you said, you may be more willing to fly uh, a predator, for example, to the 12-mile limit of China and see how they respond as opposed yeah. to flying a rivet joint over there and then, or EP3 or, uh, or something or an E8. But those big platforms, you got to ask yourself, how much, how much, how much longer are you going to fly those? They can be replaced with disaggregated unmanned aircraft. It's time to start working on that. And and and, and even from an air-to-air -air standpoint, right? I mean, when you look at Skyborg and the things that you're demonstrating with the Avenger, talk to us about that side of the mission, because you guys are doing some very cutting-edge AI work to create some of these algorithms that fighter pilots are finding confounding because the airplanes are behaving not like a human would behave. Well, that's, you know, a big part of what we're doing right now, especially on the Skyborg effort, is this autonomy. And so we're working hard on this, on that to um, make many aircraft act as one, one system. And um, they have keep out zones. They, when they're threatened by red air, they all turn and, and you know, face a threat like a pit bull. And, you know, they, they've, you know, this is, this is going to be a game changer, you know, in my opinion, going forward. And, um, you know, a big piece of that is persistence. And you're not going to get that unless you, you know, get some standoff, long-endurance aircraft and, um, and maybe some uh, very long-endurance 
somewhat uh, balanced survivable aircraft with smalls as well. I think we think that's how you get persistence. Um, let, let me take you to the question of speed, right? Um, you guys work programs, I've noticed even in the last couple of years, you guys moving faster, uh, right? If you went 10 years ago, you guys didn't have nearly the kind of pods you have, whereas now you have everything from self-defense to uh, the anti-submarine warfare, right? Sona buoy dispensers up to 30 uh, G class G, uh, 10 class A, uh, which, is, which is quite a payload to be able to put uh, on an unmanned aircraft and send it out there for 25-hour uh, missions, 40-hour missions. Um, what is the key to speed, right? I mean, the customer keeps talking. This is a two-part question. First part is the one you can control is Dave Alexander within the boundaries of GASI. What are you doing and how are you aligning? Because over the last couple of years, you, you've been talking about how you're aligning the enterprise for speed. What are you guys doing and what's the fruit that it's bearing? And is it meeting your metrics for success? Yeah. Well, I hope so. You know, we're, we really pride ourselves on moving quick. And, and part of that is being privately held. We can make decisions on a dime and make investments where we think they are. And, you know, I, every six months within every year, we reassess where we're going. And we, we'll turn and, you know, uh, you know, bet our discretionary somewhere else. But a key part um, is that we're organized with a group that does nothing but mission payloads and exploitation. That's all they think about. How do I um, make a new mission? They've done just an outstanding job in the maritime area right now, which is going to be a whole new frontier. Just like I mentioned, air moving target, you know, and airborne early warning. Maritime is just as big for these um, this size mail platform that can be, again, disaggregated. It can do, um, you know, anti-submarine warfare. It can do, um, you know, the maritime uh, ISR. and uh, you can bring all that to the ground now and do edge computing on it. You don't have to have a bunch of people in a big airplane flying all over the place anymore. You can do that with much smaller aircraft, um, albeit, you know, these are not small airplanes by themselves, but, but much smaller, you know, than a, a P-8 or, a, you know, a P-3. Um, how is the customer... Um how does the customer need to change, right? Everybody is talking about moving faster. I think nobody t is, talks more about it than Secretary Kendall does in terms of making the case for urgency. We talked to him at the Reagan Forum, uh, and he talked to us, you know, hey, I take this briefing around to members of Congress to show them, to uh, not to scare them, but to open their eyes to the nature of the threat and why it's imperative to move fast. You know, looking at some of the budget charts, which we reviewed with, with your uh, folks, was abundantly clear where the money is going and that things are moving faster. As somebody who's been in this game, as you have for now nearly 40 years, are we moving as fast as we need to be moving? Are you seeing things moving faster, uh, the customer changing their approach and moving past bureaucracy? Because even the senior most leaders of each of the military services have complained that despite their ardent efforts to change their own organizations, they're still moving too slow. Yeah, it feels like to me they're just moving too slow. I think um, the last four years has been a lot of um, importance put on some flashy demos that I don't think uh, were really, you know, relevant to uh, operational needs, quite honestly. Now, some of that was probably needed to, you know, wake everybody up, but it's time to now go to work on something that you can actually go use. And I think that's, um, you know, one of our key um, requirements when we do an investment, we say, what are we investing in, in and can it be taken 
to the field and be operational. And if you're just doing something for something's sake and not doing it, you know, uh, so that whatever your development can actually be used in the field, we don't, we shouldn't be doing it. So we always make sure whatever we're doing, can we take it to the field and be operational? And I think that's, I think, um, to be honest, I think, uh, you know, our services need to start doing the same. And I am hearing good stuff out of Secretary Kendall now, and it's looking like, uh, you know, he's really pushing that way. So I, I'm hopeful going forward that we're going to actually push for more operational relevant, you know, ideas. Let's talk about the export picture. Um, these uh, aircraft have been successful. We saw Dutch aircraft uh, in service with France. Uh, obviously, the, the MQ-9B uh, is going to be in Royal Air Force service, right? Uh, early modern, modern uh, Reapers are already in service. Uh, in France, uh, it's refreshing to see that even though those are MQ-9As, France uh, does not seem to have the problems other countries have in terms of operating it over their airspace. So if they need to be flying over the Bastille, Day Parade, they fly over the Bastille Day Parade without necessarily having a bunch of collision avoidance called good old-fashioned air traffic control to stay away from these boxes at these, at these times. What does the international picture look like uh, for, for you guys? And most importantly, uh, there are a lot of questions about the administration. It's about, we hear on Friday, going to unveil uh, the new arms export uh, regulations. Uh, it is going to be driven by human rights and make sure that we don't put weapons in the hands of folks who are going to use it uh, to, uh, you know, against others maybe unfairly. Uh, but ultimately, there is also a case to be made for the United States to support its allies and partners. Some of this is aimed, obviously, at Saudi Arabia and the, the United Arab Emirates. Uh, from your perspective, what does the international market look like, and are you concerned that our arms export regulations are going to complicate that uh, endeavor going forward? Well, definitely complicate it and slow it down. It's, uh, the whole thing goes too slow on, you know, international sales. Um, but that being said, I think over the last, I don't know, um, five years, I would say, things have greatly improved. You know, we have a new UAS export policy. Uh, MTCR is, you know, they're talking about revising that and making some new parameters so that, you know, a lot of these airplanes can be considered Category 2 and, and then, you know, export a lot easier. But, um, you know, those ideas of holding back on unmanned aircraft are about 15 years old, okay? And so whatever our government thinks they're doing by holding back our, uh, unmanned aircraft sales is all that's doing is putting the business right into China, putting it right in, you know, Turkey, into Israel, all the competitors out there. And quite honestly, every one of those I just said is a state-owned company, and uh, competing with them, you know, is a, is a tough deal. I mean, they don't have certified accounting systems and, you know, b you know BOE sheets and FAR Part 15 and, and foreign military approvals and I don't have any of that. And so it's really important, um, I think, that they understand whatever they think they're doing by slowing it down, it's not working. Okay, all you're doing is forcing our allies and partners to go somewhere else. Because they get frustrated. They get frustrated. They've been waiting a long time. And they're not going to wait forever. So it's time to, you know, one one test would be if you can if you can sell them a fighter jet with weapons underneath it, you should be able to sell them a turboprop unmanned aircraft. Okay. 
from your standpoint, sort of explain to folks, right, because there's this tendency of thinking somehow of an armed, unmanned system is somehow more lethal than an F-16 or an F-15, and that's just not the case, right? What's, from your perspective, the right way to be looking at this, right? Because you talked about MTCR, the Missile, Techn Missile Technology Control Regime, that, you know, quite honestly, you could put explosives on a you know, a propeller-driven airplane, a Cessna 172, and send it off and, and, and cause mayhem, right? But ultimately, what to you is the distinction and how should folks be looking uh, at this? Well, first off, I mean, the, the, for that acronym, MTCR, the first word is missile. And these aren't missiles, they're airplanes. And they're remotely piloted airplanes. So they're still a pilot. Uh, he just happens to be on the ground. These aren't killer robots. Okay, and, and to be honest, they're, they're um, platforms with persistence. You can study what you're doing. You can be careful what you're doing. You're not flying in there at 500 knots, not knowing where, you know, what it is exactly you're looking at. So, you know, I contend it's a much um, less lethal but more precision platform. And so, you know, a country that's got... F-18s, F-15s, F-16s, armed to the hilt, and we're having, you know, we're being slowed down to sell unmanned aircraft. To me, is just, it doesn't even, it's just beyond silly. And, and, and the barrier obviously has dropped, right? So nations around the world are starting to produce this capability in mass uh, and, and, and put them into service. I should also point out, right, it was really neat seeing your new ground control system that, that consists of a laptop that can now, instead of like one bulky control uh, module uh, controlling one aircraft, you're now using one laptop to control actually a dozen or more of these airplanes eventually. Well, what, what we've moved is to get our software away from dedicated hardware so that we can run our software to control. So the pilot could operate off of a laptop, off a desktop, whatever. The key for the future, and this is where we're heading, this is huge now, is what we call SATCOM automatic takeoff and landing. So downrange, where we used to have a launch and recovery element with a pilot and a sensor operator, he'd, he'd take the airplane off and then hand it off to a satellite to somewhere halfway around the world, and then the inverse of that coming home to land is going to be a thing of the past. And so everything is going to be controlled from one place, including taxi, take off, do the mission, come home and taxi back and park. And that's going to free up, um, you know, uh, the crew, uh, the crew training, because they're not doing, you know, rudder and stick landings anymore. And um, it's just going to be, you know, uh, a game changer as far as saving personnel going forward. So, um, you know, we think, we think we can cut the pilot crew down more than 50% by taking advantage of uh, automatic takeoff and landing through SATCOM, so you get everybody in one place. Uh, not doing manual takeoff and landings, and then do when you're in transit, uh, do multi-aircraft control, and we can get about 60% of your, um, you know, your pilots out of the cockpits. Just they're gone, 60%. Could you imagine telling FedEx today, you can still deliver the same amount of packages with 60% of your less of your pilots? That would be phenomenal, wouldn't it? Well, we can do the same thing, yet it's, it's got to get embraced. It's got to get done. We, we need to take what we have and make it, modernize it, automate it. 
package right. package delivery by Sky Guardian or by uh, Avenger would be pretty pretty good. You, you go. should you should be talking to Fred Smith about this. Yeah, well, there you go. Good idea. <laughs> um, let me ask you very quickly because you've been generous with your time and we're running out of it for the program. Uh, inflation and labor, right? Both have been uh, going up. There was a whole bunch of descriptions about what's causing it. We had a fascinating conversation with Mike Petters, your counterpart at Huntington Ingalls Industries, uh, and he, you know we talked about both of those. Material costs are going up, uh, and obviously the nature of labor. Uh, is changing, right? I mean, people do not affiliate with their jobs the way they did, and they're looking for much more flexible work at the end of the day. You, like his business, were critical industries during this pandemic. Um, talk to us about inflation, talk to us about labor, and I have one last question, and I want to ask you about COVID mandates and, and how you keep your workforce safe, especially as uh, the Omicron wave uh, now comes at us. Well, we're, we have to... Um you know, every year look at industry comparables as far as labor goes. And so then we update our database to make sure that, you know, we're staying up with the market. So being in California, you know, there's a premium there. And then being in San Diego, there's another premium that, you, you know, you need to pay. You got to pay a premium to live in paradise. It's, this is correct. So, so anyway, it, you know, it does, um, it's something you have to stay on top of. And it's um, right now is, you know, a big, big demand for any kind of technical people, you know. Uh, we see a big demand for software. We see a big uh, engineers and just engineers in general. And um, I think you're seeing a lot, especially post-COVID, I think you're seeing a lot of the uh, people maybe that would work another five years or maybe eight years are rethinking life, you know, after COVID, you know, maybe let's retire. And uh, that's causing a little bit of a pressure you know, to fill that gap as well. So there's a lot of early retirement um, that we're dealing with, but we got to get more kids into college, okay? And we got to get, uh, you know, more engineers on the workforce. And um, so as far as inflation goes, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, you just track it every year and stay on top of it. It's not, it's not, um, it's not putting us out of business or anything. It's just, you know, now when you, like when I was mentioned earlier, if I got to compete with, you know, a state-owned, you know, company in another country, that gets pretty rough. But, uh, yeah, but you, and you're, you do have the flexibility of being privately owned, right? So you don't necessarily have to give dividends to a, to a shareholder. You, you have a long cycle in investor uh, and investors. Um, let me ask you last question about Omicron. Um, you guys have managed to uh, be successful. You guys have controlled your cases very, very well. Mm -hmm. You're in a state that does have mask and vaccine mandates that have proven to be relatively uh, successful. Um, do, you, do you feel comfortable where you are, especially as the Omicron wave uh, comes at us, and is there any special precaution you guys are taking to make sure that you can continue to uh, deliver? Oh, absolutely, and we, you know, we stay on top of it. We we uh, meet twice a week uh, now. We and uh, make sure that everybody's aware of what's going on. We have a you know a crew that sanitizes uh, areas where we maybe had somebody that came in and you know um, that came up positive for COVID, but we stay on top of it and. Where you get COVID is from home, not from work. So come to work. It's the safest place to be right now. Um, and, uh, you know, this mandate they had for the vaccine that came out, you know, I'm glad to see that cool heads have prevailed on that and we're being more logical because that was really causing a lot of havoc. And uh, the workforce, I mean, we had people who were vaccinated saying, I don't, 
I don't care. I'm not even going to tell you because I'm mad at you for, you know, telling me I have to do it. And so I, I think um, I'm glad to see that, you know, with uh, things, things have loosened up and, you know, we're, we still don't know exactly where all that's going, but it doesn't look like you're going to be firing, uh, you know, 10% of your workforce tomorrow, which was kind of where we were heading. That was really scary for a while. And uh, where, where are you on your vaccination rates? And so your argument is it's better for you to cajole people into trying to do that than forcing them to try to do that. Yeah, we had a, forcing them doesn't work. And then, uh, like I said, it really backfires on you. So what we've, what we've done is, uh, let's, let's see, this April we brought, um, where was it? I'm sorry, it was June. We brought everybody back and said, okay, you you got to come back to work because, you know, it, everybody's got together to get these development jobs done and we really need the cohesive groups working together again so we said you could have one day off a week to work from home and we feel that's sustainable going forward okay and uh so that caused you know that caused some issues we we lost maybe 50 people out of that Mm -hmm. but what i'm saying it's an honest way to go forward because we feel it's sustainable Okay, as opposed to, let's say there's a company that's um, looking to recruit people and they're using that as a recruitment tool. Well, what happens a year from now? You know, they recruit you away from from us, you know, offering you 100% work from home, then they realize that's not sustainable. Guess what? You're back at work again. So I just, you know, beware of, you know, something that sounds too good to be true. That's all I got to say, because I'm, I'm telling you, we, it takes, it takes uh, people in a room, it takes cohesive work to solve problems, you know, integrated labs and, you know, software testing and flight line testing. You can't do this virtually. You know, you have to get together and go make it happen. And um, so we're trying to be, we're trying to offer up something we think we can continue and sustain, and we could not sustain work from home. Are you, uh, and last question, are you comfortable with your vaccination rates and and where your team is, especially if, you know, what could be another problematic wave is is bearing down on you? Yeah, I think so. You know, to me, it's no more riskier than it was March of last year, you know, and we stayed operational through the whole period and uh, our employees stayed safe. Like I was saying earlier, the safest place to be is at work, not at home. And um, we had our best, you know, production year ever. We delivered 81 airplanes last year, and we're doing the same this year. We're doing great. And um, so, yeah, I, I really think um, um, our teams really did a good job of keeping people safe, um, aware when somebody does come positive, and then we, you know, if they've gone positive, then we work backwards who they've been in contact with and to be safe, you know. Isolate. So you do contact tracing oh, and all yeah. that. Oh, yeah, 100%. And um, it's all these things that made it possible for to have a safe work environment. And um, we, we have tracked uh, all of last year, anybody that, you know, contacted the, the virus got it at home or, you know, somewhere else other than work. Zero from work, so, in that whole year. Sir, thanks very much. Absolute pleasure as always talking to you. Congratulations on the bouncing baby airplane and uh, look forward to uh, seeing it uh, flying around and, and not uh, seeing it under one of the tents. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, that's, uh, that's our goal too and really appreciate you coming by and, and uh, love spending time with you.